I'm not sure there are a lot of people necessarily saying it's the best way to do it, only it's the way we've got and trying to create a whole new way of doing it would require some kind of agreement between the parties on how they were going to do that. And American politics is so divided at the moment that that's just not possible. Hello and welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm your host, Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places and the events that have shaped the USA into the country it is today. This week, as the nomination contests for the 2024 presidential election get fully underway, I want to find out a little more about how it all works as I ask, what is a primary and a caucus? And joining me from the faculty this week is Dr. Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and the Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Hello, Emma. Hi, Liam. It's really good to have you back on the podcast. Good to be here. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be the first of, of many times that we we talk about this over the coming months. Yeah, I have a feeling that regular listeners are going to feel like the election has been going on for years, uh, which is how the rest of us feel most of the time. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we're so we're recording this kind of end of January 2024, New Hampshire primary has just happened. So um, people are already saying the general election has basically started because I think no no presidential or at least no Republican presidential candidate has won both the Iowa and New Hampshire um, caucus and primary and gone on to lose the nomination from what I understand may well um, be true yeah and at this present time Trump has just won both of those Nikki Haley's still in the race as far as we know um, as they head into South Carolina but I mean everyone's talking now about Trump versus Biden so yeah election is on really yeah and that's one of the weird things right we I think we we talked before when we talked about presidential elections about the fact that there's these two periods right the first period this is the primary period and like the main general election doesn't get started until august um after the uh, party conventions but like you say because there's no major challenger to joe biden so he's sort of the presumptive nominee uh, and because as we record this it looks like it'll be trump for the republicans i mean in fairness, as it has for quite some time um, at this point. Um, Yes, they're going to be going, you know, they're going to be fighting, fighting it out through the primaries, but ultimately they're not fighting against others in their party. They're now just fighting against each other. So an election, a general election that's supposed to run for three months is now going to run for closer to 10. Mm. Um, And we wonder why Americans are, are sort of fed up with elections right? they're getting this constantly for for 11 months i i can ima- i easily see why some of them get to election day and go i'm i'm not going out to vote i've had enough yeah and you know when you think about it the the actual like window as you as you say for the the the, the main kind of general election campaigning happens after the conventions which is in the summer so that's actually quite a small window you look at the the process that that comes before that i mean candidates are putting their hats in the in the race you know anything up to like 18 months before ron desantis 
didn't, hasn't even been living in Florida for the last year and he's the governor of the state because he was so focused on trying to win and then he drops out after the first caucus. Um, so it's it's a long process and we, we covered it a little bit when we when we chatted to John Sopel uh, in one of our earliest episodes to, to go and check that out. But um, this episode particularly, I wanted to just dive a little bit deeper into that process because it takes so much longer than the actual general election campaign. So how does it work? Oh, there's a, a big question. I think the first thing to, to remember uh, in, in many ways is, although this is about the presidential election, because of the way presidential elections work through the electoral college, the presidential election isn't a national election. It's 50 state elections. So what you've got in primary season is candidates vying to be the nominee for the party in 50 state elections, not one national election. And they have to get nominated by the 50 state parties, which is what the primaries and caucuses are. So you've, you've got 50 of them. Um, that takes some time. I mean, there are lots of reasons why the process takes this long historically, because if candidates needed to go and convince people to to try and vote for them, you know, we didn't have they didn't have instant media and, and all the rest of, of what we have now. So, you know, they had to travel from place to place to try and convince the great and the good of their party, not the general public. We'll come to this in a second, but they had to travel and convince people at a time when travel took longer. So, you know, you've you've got a practical reason. Uh, but in the modern era with media and, and all the rest of it, one of the reasons is the, the states vie for, for like being earlier or earlier or later on, right? It, it's prestige to have an early an early primary or an early caucus. You get a lot of attention in the state, it brings people to the, the state. And actually for candidates particularly smaller candidates. We haven't seen that in a little while, perhaps, but for, for smaller candidates, those those early states, places like Iowa and New Hampshire, they're smaller, they cost less money to get a campaign organized. Mm. So for, for people who perhaps have less name recognition and haven't been able to, to raise money, they can try and build up some momentum in these early states and then work their way through so i mean people like um jimmy carter remember you, you had a podcast about uh, about carter he was relatively unknown outside of his state when he ran for president in the 1970s um, but what he did was he managed to build momentum from these smaller states even bill clinton obviously mm -hmm. elected in he wasn't really well known outside of his home state of, of arkansas so candidates can use that process to their advantage so there, there's a historical reason and, and sort of a practical one in terms of the way that it it now works and of course it benefits increasingly candidates because they get more and more media coverage you know as they win not so good if you lose but you know those who are more successful they they get media coverage that brings more people hopefully to their campaign it helps them raise money which means they get onto the next stage and and so there's no real there's no real pressure to condense primary period yeah but i mean running running a nomination campaign is expensive like, oh hugely you, expensive you need those donors don't you and like ron DeSantis, i think i i, I heard somewhere because he he 
of the amount of votes that he got in the Iowa caucus and the amount of money that he spent campaigning just in that state alone. I think someone worked out that he paid roughly $6,000 per vote and still only came in second. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. This is the the nature of, of American elections and especially those early ones. Again, that idea that if you can either do, if you can either win the early ones or do better than expected in those early ones, the story then becomes about you and you can build that that momentum. So mm. a lot of money per vote effectively goes into those early campaigns in the mm-hmm. hope that they can do that. Obviously, in DeSantis's case, it really didn't pay off. Historically, for, for others, they say, you know, Carter and, and Clinton, among others, it has been a more successful tactic. But yeah, I mean, something like the, the last presidential election cycle, so 2000, the cost of both the presidential election and the congressional elections that happened, the total amount of money spent in that election cycle was something like $16 billion. It's um, It's just, sometimes I think the American economy would collapse if they didn't have an election like this every four years, just the sheer amount of money. But it gives you an idea of what, what people feel is at stake and, and how much they're spending. But then, of course, you know, you've got to think when you break down that 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 sort of $16 billion uh, and whatever it is, you know, uh, every year, there are some big companies that give money to both sides because they're hedging their bets, right? Because it's all yeah. politics. You know, they're making sure that they win over the right people. So it's just, it's, but it's madness because then you're essentially kind of cancelling it out. Yeah, I think that there's a whole podcast to be done on campaign finance in the United States. I think it's uh, it's, it's both misunderstood in some ways and um, massively important for understanding how it how it works. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a future appearance for you there, Emma. I'll get back <laughs> that one. Um, but I, let's reiterate for people who maybe didn't listen to our, our our earlier episode or have just gotten confused again because it's so easy to when you kind of dive into American politics. What actually is a primary and a caucus? What's the difference between the two? Okay, so both of them are in effect a party's way of determining who's going to be their candidate. Here in the UK, we have a similar system, but it's done much more quietly. Um, So, for example, if there's a constituency that that needs a new MP, um, there will be a selection process of people who want to to stand for for that seat. But it's done sort of within the the party. It's not an open vote and all of those kinds of things. So a primary and a caucus in many ways at its heart is not that dissimilar from that process, right? Somebody, there's one job going, somebody wants it, or lots of people want it, you've got to work out who's going to to get it. And this is the, the way that has um, come. Differences between the two. Caucuses, there are relatively few of them these days, but caucuses are much more like the way that presidential candidates were picked in history, which is sort of, it, it's the party, it's the members of the, the party, sort of the often the great and the good of the, the party, almost, I don't want to mischaracterize the modern one, but if you think about those like smoke-filled white 
male dominated rooms of the past where like the the party leaders got together to discuss who they wanted to be their their candidate mm. that's how it works historically and caucuses are sort of a, a slightly evolved version of, of that so they have meetings in person people have to go along in person to those meetings and they vote in those meetings we're not talking secret ballots or anything like that it's a kind of show of hands discussion followed by a, a show of hands debate this is why um, actually this this year in the um, the Iowa caucus which was the first for the Republicans there was such a big debate because they'd got this kind of massive cold spell and temperatures were like minus 30 degrees celsius mm. um and you know there was a lot of discussion about how many people were going to come out because those kinds of temperatures are dangerous so but that that's a caucus if you like people physically going to a meeting room to discuss and then then vote a mm. uh, primary is much more like the the elections we're more familiar with <laughs> generally people cast a ballot um and then they are collected up and um and and counted in in that way primaries are actually relatively recent uh for all the talk and how much time we we spend looking at them primaries really didn't exist before the beginning of the 20th century they were fairly sparse through most of the 20th century there were a few states that that had them most didn't um, the real change is um, 19, the Democratic Party convention in Chicago in 1968 is famous for a lot of very bad reasons, partly because it was the height of the Vietnam War, the anti-war protests. A lot of anti-war protesters turned up sort of in opposition to Lyndon Johnson, even though Lyndon Johnson wasn't standing for election that, that year. Uh, but they turn up in Chicago. Um, Mayor Daley wants to, to make a big um big play of, of having the, the convention in Chicago and that he's cleaned up the city and all of this. Uh, that there's sort of over policing of protesters and minority groups, and there's a lot of violence outside the um, outside the, the convention hall. There's a really good movie that tells a story of some of these by Aaron Sorkin. It's called The Trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, worth a, a watch. But it sort of tells some some of the some or part of the the story around that. But so there's chaos going on outside the convention, and mm. inside the convention, the Democratic Party is deeply divided between sort of carrying on with the the Vietnam War and trying to see it through to its end and sort of the anti-Vietnam War protesters. So you've got Hubert Humphrey, who's sort of the, the pro-war candidate for want of a better term. And on the, the other side of, um, of that battle, you've got Eugene McCarthy, who's sort of very much the anti-war candidate. You also uh, before that had had Robert Kennedy, who's who was assassinated only a couple of months before the convention. Humphrey hadn't entered any of the Democratic primaries that year, yet he's the one who at the convention wins the, the nomination. Mm. And there's such a, it, it's chaos on the floor um, of the, the convention of these debates going backwards and, and forwards. And after that, the Democrats sort of have, have a big sort of rethink. There's a, a commission set up to, to rethink because it just it wasn't good for, for anybody. It didn't look good for the party. It wasn't good for voters. And they introduce ultimately what comes of that is the introduction from uh, from the 1972 election of, of more primaries. And then because they do that, sort of the Republicans end up nudging in that direction as well. So 
primaries really, like I said, early 20th century was about part of the progressive movement was mm. about fairer elections. So trying to break the control of like the the party machines and the, the kind of the heads of the party and to give ordinary voters a bit more of a, a say comes along with other reforms like bringing in the referendum and also the secret ballot actually is part of some of that uh, earlier movement. So that, that changes the beginning of it. Um, but it's not until actually relatively recently, nearly not quite my lifetime, but almost um, from the, the 1970s that primaries really become dominant in the, the process of choosing candidates. But OK, so so all 50 states have either a, a primary or a caucus and then uh, the, the, the winner goes to the convention in the summer and gets formally nominated. But you mentioned about how, you know, these were kind of brought in to sort of democratise the process a little bit more and take kind of some uh, sort of less, I guess, discretionary power away from the the sort of the, the party heads. Um, but am I right in thinking that the parties aren't bound to the results of the primaries and caucuses? If So if the delegates from each state went to the convention in the summer, they're not in any way, you know, legally or obligated to nominate the candidate that that the primary and caucus has chosen they can still go and pick someone else can't they uh not so much these days historically yes that was the uh, that was the the case increasingly the 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 delegates that uh, voted for the convention um are increasingly bound to by the the terms of the the party requirements to right. to vote for the the candidates uh each state is different this is the the other thing to remember about these which is because it's 50 state primaries everyone is different and everyone has its own rules and regulations so it's it's hard to generalize too much about it but generally speaking those candidates are bound to those uh delegates sorry at the convention are bound to vote for the the candidates unless certain things happen at the convention you know if if there's then they they become unbound from from that but you also have to remember that it's not primaries generally are not necessarily winner takes all so democrat the democrats um at their their primaries say Obviously, this year we're we're just talking about Biden, but um, in previous years where they've been two or three candidates, the 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 year when Obama and Clinton were running, for example, um, in their primaries, um, the delegates they get are uh, distributed based on the proportion of the vote that they get in the primaries. So, if somebody somebody may not win but might come close, that's important because it, it determines the number of, of delegates. Mm. The Republicans work it slightly differently. So this year, at least, and again, it can change every year, every election cycle. But for, for this 2024 cycle, um, Republicans distribute delegates proportionately up for primaries up until uh, I think it's the 15th of March. And then for primaries and caucuses that, that happen after that, um, the person who wins get, gets all of the delegates. I think working on the fact that that date, by that date, you have a sense of what who the front runner is, is going yeah. to, to be. Uh, so historically, yes. I mean, historically, the conventions were the time where all of the delegates met and they really did work out who the candidate was going to, to be. There were votes on the the floor of the convention and there was bargaining going on both 
behind the scenes and in front of them. Uh, and people were really working out who candidates would be increasingly because of the way the primaries now work and the coverage that they get. The conventions, they, they do important business in terms of what the, the platform is going to be, what the campaign strategies are, are going to, to be uh, for the party, if not specifically for the, the candidate. But it's much more of a publicity show, right? It's mm. it's a the crowning of the the candidate and sending them off into the the general election to say we've had this messy process where there's been lots of infighting. Um, now we're all coming together behind the person who won, and now we're all going to get behind that person before they go try and beat the other guy. So yeah, again, it's that historical change. I just want to pick up on your point there about. Now, obviously, people are more bound to honour the results of the primaries and caucuses. Uh, we're, we're, we're assuming that that system works, right? That, that, that somehow that's more effective, that we're, we're democratising the vote. But the Republican Party, case in point, 1860, presumably there wasn't the primaries and the caucuses. They put forward Abraham Lincoln. 2015, or sorry, 2016, primaries and caucuses are there they're in full effect they nominate donald trump there's a there's a, there's an argument there that perhaps they're not as effective as they're meant to be right <laughs> i mean there, there would have been some people who um if you'd have asked them in 1860 would have told you that um abraham lincoln was the worst thing to happen to the country of course <laughs> <laughs> just you know, you know yeah, civil well, yeah, war followed point. so um you know there, there were differences of opinion but i i yeah, I, I take your point. And I don't know. I mean, there, there's been a lot of discussion uh, amongst academics, amongst political commentators. You only have to do a, a pretty quick search online right, to, to find journalists and academics and commentators right, writing articles about, you know, the broken primary system and, and how it favours one, one group over another or, you know, it, it's it's open to not not corruption exactly, but it, it's it's sort of it, it's open to unfair influence, and that there, there there would definitely these days be better ways to to run this. So I I don't know like a, a lot of the American system of government. I'm not sure there are a lot of people necessarily saying it's the best way to do it. Only it's the way we've got, and trying to create a whole new way of doing it would require some kind of agreement between the parties on how they were going to do that. And American politics is so divided at the moment that that's just not possible. Mm. Uh, so like many things, there's a legacy there of how things work. And I think, you know, the, the progressive movement in the early 20th century had a point, right? When you look at what happened with voting practices before that, before the secret ballot, where people just like turned up to a room and put their hands up and and got counted. You know, it's the era of the what we call the party machines, mm. um, where, you know, it's, it, there's fraud and graft and corruption and whole stories of this um if anybody's listening is interested in this i mean it's a fascinating history the famous one is uh, tammany hall out of new york city of the the uh, the um the political machines uh but the progressives wanted to clean up politics and in the context of the politics of their day this was a good way of doing it of ordinary voters 
being able to actually have a say in who the candidates were, and especially in some parts of the country, determining who the candidate was was equivalent to determining who the the person who got elected was. So for a long time through the 20th century, the Democrats were so dominant in the South, for example, that if you were running on the Democratic ticket for, say, state level thing, you were going to get elected because the Democrats were were so dominant. So it did give people a, a say, but elections have changed since then. Technology has changed. The nature of the, the of politics has changed. Mm-hmm. The media has, has changed. Money has, has become much more of an issue. Um, so, you know, the ideas were right then, but maybe not necessarily so much now. And, and so, you know, we've been talking about this up, up to now in the context of, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. Um, and that's, I mean that that's very much how American politics has has shaped up, but it's 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 almost a two party system by design because the Democrats and the Republicans have gotten big enough that they can kind of squeeze out other other candidates um, from the race. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, if we look beyond just the main two parties. Are sort of other independent candidates and other smaller political parties bound by the same nomination process? Um, no, I mean the the thing to remember. I, well, one of the things I think to remember about the primary and caucus system is it's not a constitutional thing. Right? When the when the the founders wrote the constitution back in the the late eighteenth century, they thought parties were a really bad thing, and they didn't really predict in many ways that that was what was going to happen, even though it came really quickly. So primaries are in many ways sort of, they're not state events. This sounds a bit confusing, but for much of American history, they parties were private organizations organizing their own internal business, and they then put them forward for the, the elections that were state business. And actually, for much of American history, that's how the parties justified um, racial exclusion. So finding ways to prevent non-white voters from voting, because they, they would say, well, we're a private organization. We're not governed by the terms of the, the Constitution. We can dictate who our own members were, and we don't want people who aren't white. And in some cases, they were that blunt about mm. it. Of course, as the civil rights movement um, really begins to, to come into to force, and you get groups like the, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who also emerge sort of in that same era of the progressive movement, fighting for, for voting rights for um, people of color. They begin to to try and find ways of of challenging this, and one of the things they're really successful in is getting the Supreme Court to to recognise that although these parties are private organisations, um, when they are doing things that have something to do with elections, like primaries, they are, they sort of become semi state organisations because of the link to what comes next in that process mm. um, so it takes a while for that to, to happen um, but they are still effectively not private but sort of semi 
private organizations by parties organizing their own internal business. If you've got a third party candidate, I think the obvious one who comes to, to my mind because he, he was sort of the most successful was Ross Perot in 1992. He didn't represent the party. He sort of decided to to run for, him, run for himself. He didn't have to go through those kinds of processes because he's his own he's not standing on behalf of a, a party yeah. um so you know independent candidates like that are not bound by the the same processes but of course the primary system now gets so much media coverage mm. that if you're not doing something like that it's going to be very hard to to sort of feed into that media story um, so you know maybe one of the things that if, if you were thinking about changing it, it's not just about changing the primary system. It's about changing the way that the media cover it. Hmm. It's kind of feeds into my next thought, which was all around the sort of the, the, the longevity of the, of the um, like nominations campaign, because it is very drawn out. And I, I, I don't really understand why this can't just be one day nationwide polling just like it is on the general election you know if they can do it to elect the president then surely they can organize it on one day to elect the nominees right and yet it takes so much time so much money so much resource and months of just organized state by state you know primaries and caucuses like you know take this year um iowa was what middle of january the final primary won't be until what may june Something like that, yeah. Like it's it's madness to me. Why not just combine all the nomination sort of primaries and caucuses into one day and have a longer general election campaign period where you can kind of galvanize your resources as a party, but you can also kind of campaign on a national level so much more effective without tearing your your party apart with infighting between candidacy nominees yeah i mean it it makes sense um i mean i I don't uh, i don't necessarily disagree with you like i said historically i think there are reasons why it why it was spread out for practical reasons um Mm. some people again as we said have a vested interest in it because there are a small number of people who've been very successful at building that momentum from the earlier ones into the later ones, which you wouldn't get if they were all on one day. Mm. Um, you know, for for candidates that perhaps don't already have name recognition, that all on one day thing maybe doesn't work. Although if you have a bigger run up to it um, with people sort of running campaigns up to, to that point, that might mitigate against um, against some of that. But yes, it, it's it's back to that point that it's been done like this for so long, mm. trying to get something this big and and sort of this entrenched, trying to convince people to change it is extremely hard. Uh, people might not like it, and lots of people say they don't. And you know, you ask Americans. Go ask, do a survey of Americans around May time and ask them how they think about the election. And they'll tell you that they're sick to death of, of it by that point, And there's still months to go. Um, but again, once you, when you start trying to talk about change, people get very antsy mm. about those, those things. So um, all of which is not to say that it, they shouldn't rethink it, only to try and explain why they don't. And I guess, you know, the, the, 
the challenges with trying to change anything here is exactly the same as we've discussed before about anything um, sort of legal in America is that you've got this sort of tug of war constantly between federal and state. And actually, um, it, it feels like from what you're saying that there is really no kind of federal jurisdiction over um, how states choose or how each party chooses their nominee in each state. So it's not a case of just saying, let's change it and make a better system. It's it's you have to convince your party in 50 different states to change the way that they elect and choose their their nominee, yep. right? Yeah. And under, under the terms of the Constitution, states have control over how their elections work. So even for the presidential election, it is a statewide election and every state sets their own terms and I think we've mentioned this in the the podcast before but everything from where polling stations uh, can can be to what hours they open to whether you can whether you can vote by post to what kind of ID you need to to take to be able to vote it's different in every state um, so yes there is no it, it's not something that the federal government can can change because elections are state run Hmm. and i I think there's definitely a conversation to be had near the election around kind of the the kind of the the mechanics of the of election day i guess and sort of the issues there around kind of voter suppression and uh with the way it's sort of currently run um oh yeah there's definitely a whole podcast on that (laughs) certainly but when we look particularly at the primaries and the caucuses so to, to kind of whistle stop summarize so essentially every state has its own um, process which is sort of tied together by kind of the higher party code of conduct and ways of doing things and delegates are then bound to honor the results of each of their states processes when they go to the convention and it's at the convention in the summer that the party's um, nominee is then chosen so i guess my final question is does it actually work? And is there is there a better way forward? Oh, um, does it work? I mean, at a basic level, yes, it does, because you get candidates to run in the election. Um, you know, there's, there's that, do you get the best candidates? There's a whole other question, and a lot of people would say no, especially in this current election cycle, where they look at Biden and Trump and think these are the two best candidates your parties can put forward out of all of the possibilities that mm. the, there may be. So that yeah, there's a there's a question there. Um, I think I've said before on this. I'm a historian. I deal with what happened in the past. I get very uncomfortable when people try and ask me how it should be or what it might be in the might be in the future. Um, I there are other ways of electing candidates, right? You know, half the world this year has an election of some kind and every country runs a, a slightly different process. So there are other examples out there that the United States could look to if it was inclined to reform the election system. I just don't think anybody's prepared to take on the challenge that's that big, um, particularly not in the current climate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I I think it does beg the question of if America is just settling for a process that they know isn't the most effective at selecting the best candidate. But if they don't go with what they have, they'd end up 
having no candidate because it's such a divisive country without without ha- just having the process the way it is it just feels like there would it's not about having the most democratic process it's just about having the most agreeable one is how it feels um yeah very possibly and of course again the you know common theme in our sort of political podcasts has has been to talk about the the fact that american politics is so polarized at the moment the 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 rhetoric from both sides is so polarized so the additional problem that you would have at the moment in terms of reforming it would be finding a system where one side or the other didn't suggest that it benefited one more than the other mm-hmm. at least uh, with the system that they've they've got they're both equally bad you know because they're both using more or less the same system so neither of them particularly has an advantage yeah. um, when it comes to the the general election yeah. part of of this but yeah i mean there, there's something about I don't know. On one hand, you could argue that it's it's really democratic. You know, in thinking particularly, say, about uh, the 2016 nomination where Trump sort of came to the fore. But there were lots of Republican nominees. That, yeah, and there were debates and, and those kinds of things. On one hand, you can argue that's democracy in action. Right? There are lots of candidates. People get to hear from from all of them, and then they they get to to vote. It's not done behind closed doors. It's not been done by the the elites. Um, it's it's sort of it done openly and ordinary people have a have a say that, that if you like that's one side of the the argument and sort of that maybe the slightly idealistic side the the kind of pragmatic one is to look at what happened of that and go is it really good for the party to have these people knocking 10 bells out of each other before they get to the general election at which point they go well we've just given all given our opponents all the best lines about how to attack us um and now we're going to try and sort of claim that we we didn't do that so there which are is, which is exactly problems. what joe biden did like he's taken nikki haley's um speech from um her new hampshire loss and turned it into a promotional video against trump for the democrats like that's exactly what's happened yeah yeah, yeah. and of, of course um it's particularly that that happens particularly in the situation where we are now, where there's an incumbent in one party who's not being challenged. I mean, not in any major way, but then you've got challenges in the other party. If both of them have got lots of candidates, then they're all fighting it out amongst themselves. It's sort of equal. But when you've got this imbalance, yeah, exactly. You're suddenly giving your opponents leverage. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, I think there's there's so much more to unpack, uh, not just about the nominations process, but about the entire US uh, electoral process. And I'm sure as we carry on through this crazy uh, year, we're going to uh, sort of unpack that more and more on this podcast. But I think we're going to have to wrap up for now on this particular episode. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Emma, for joining me. And if you want to find out more uh, to anyone listening, we've left some useful links in the show notes. Uh, so go check out those. And Emma, if anyone wants to connect with you or get in touch, how can they do that? Probably best to find me through the University of East Anglia. Wonderful. And uh, you can find me on X via This Is The Hef and on LinkedIn. Just search for me, Liam Heffernan. Uh, And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this uh, and give us a follow as well so that all future episodes appear in your feed. Uh, Thanks very much and goodbye.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.